The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. With all of this choice, the predicate for that minimal regulation, public interest regulation, was challenged because the predicate was the scarcity of the airwaves. And with cable and now the internet, that scarcity argument is gone. So uh, for legal reasons, the, the Constitution, the First Amendment, as well as political reasons, the government's regulation, the government's involvement in the media has, has really declined radically. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, July 8th, 2021. The news business in America is in crisis. Between 2008 and 2019, newspapers in the U.S. lost half of their newsrooms. Journalism jobs lost during the pandemic number in the tens of thousands. Local news is suffering the most, with cutbacks across the country, and many communities left without a reliable source of information for what's going on in their area. Why is this a crisis not just for journalists, but also for democracy? We turn to that question this week in today's episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on the online information ecosystem. Evelyn Dueck and I spoke with Martha Minow, the 300th anniversary university professor at Harvard Law School. She's written a new book titled Saving the News, Why the Constitution Calls for Government Action to Protect Freedom of Speech. How should we understand the crisis facing American newsrooms? How has the U.S. government historically used its power to create a hospitable environment for news? And how should that history shape our understanding of what interventions are possible today? And what role does the First Amendment play in all this? It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 8th. Can America save the news? Martha, thank you so much for joining us. We wanted to talk to you about your new book, which is titled uh, Saving the News, which naturally raises the question, what does the news need saving from particularly? Uh, It's great to be here. There are a variety of uh, problems that are leading to the demise of the news industry in the United States. Some are economic, some are technological, some are human choices that led to uh, dead ends. Uh, So the economic ones are tied up with technology. The creation of the internet means that New uh, disruptive enterprises, uh, ranging from Craigslist to Facebook, 
have drawn revenues that used to support the news industry. The technological changes also have uh, disrupted the newsrooms in America, and they were slow to adapt. The internet companies have both harvested the creations of information from conventional news sources without paying back, and also developed a taste in users for getting information for free. And uh, in addition, there have been, I think, a variety of political forces that have led many people to doubt what they receive in any form. So the first sentence of your book is, the United States Constitution specifically mentions only one private enterprise, the press, and does so in the context of according it constitutional protection, which is not something that I'd actually really realized before, but is an extraordinary thing. And it calls to mind that Thomas Jefferson quote, were it left to me to decide whether we should have a government without newspapers or newspapers without a government, I should not hesitate a moment to prefer the latter. And so I'm curious, what makes a free press so important to democracy? Well, the framers of the United States Constitution, maybe they had a particular experience, but there have been similar stories in the development of constitutions in other nations as well. Because the kind of government that a constitutional democracy uh, ushers in depends on uh, the participation of a mass group of voters, not always everybody, you know, initially in the United States, white men, white men with property, but more people than previously had been in charge. Information uh, is necessary for informed decision-making. In addition, and this seems to me even more relevant and important today, it is the news industry that can expose and hold to account the exercises of power, whether public or private, uh, expose corruption. And the framers of the Constitution actually were all previously revolutionaries who used uh, the printing press to expose the abuses of, in that case, public power. I think that this these are continuing issues. And when you see the demise of uh, the news industry, it gives us communities like Ferguson, Missouri, where there was no local newspaper, no local television. And when the horrific killing of Michael Brown led to investigations about what was wrong with the legal system in that community, one of the wrongs that I was most struck by was the lack of local news. I'm curious, and I, we definitely want to get to that point about local news, but I'm, I'm curious because you're a law professor and here you're talking about the press and how important the press is to holding people to account if there's, you know, corruption or malfeasance. Is the issue that legal institutions and the law has failed and so we're relying on the press or is it a more symbiotic relationship than that? Or what is it that led you to focus on the press if that's the endeavour? Well, being a law professor has never stopped me from wandering into areas that may not be entirely my purview. But no, quite seriously, um, I think that there is a symbiotic relationship and a cooperative and at times antagonistic relationship. But the investigatory activity, the reporting activity of the news industry 
um, has been interacting with uh, law and uh, legal accountability uh, from the origin of the United States and vice versa. It's remarkable uh, how many news stories really have a legal frame, uh, whether they deal with crime or they deal with antitrust or they deal with uh, the issues of our polity and its electoral processes, because those all have legal dimensions, of course. I want to dig a little more into that Thomas Jefferson quote, because there's another Jefferson quote that you point to in your book that really struck me, um, where Jefferson says, this is after his presidency, uh, where the press is free and every man able to read all is safe. And together with the quote that Evelyn brought up, that actually struck me as Jefferson seems to have a very optimistic view of human nature there. (laughs) He's kind of saying, you know, if people are able to read and if they're able to, if they have access to news and they're able to consume news, everything, it might not be okay, but it won't be terrible. And I found that very striking in comparison to a lot of the discussions we're having today around media literacy and misinformation and disinformation, where part of the problem is, as as we've been discussing in terms of access to local news, that people don't have access to good news. But part of the problem is also that people might just enjoy reading bad news, however you define bad, that, you know, if the press is free and every man able to read, perhaps what every man and woman will do is read garbage. Um, I'm curious what you think of that. Am I am I being unfair to Jefferson in, in calling him overly optimistic? You know, it's interesting. Jefferson was obviously a very complicated human being, and he also went through different phases in his own life. When he was president, he was not as fond of the press as when he was not president. Uh, And I can say as a former uh, university administrator, I understand that very well. It's not always fun to be on the receiving end of the searchlights of the news industry, but it's necessary. And look, I don't think that we have to hold Jefferson up as the truth teller for all times. But I I think that if we adjust what he said in terms of this is necessary but not sufficient, I would stand by it. The problem is he was, of course, a creature of the Enlightenment. He totally uh, believed in the possibility of reason. Uh, informed by evidence. Uh, He was a Renaissance man. He believed in science. He believed in architecture, bringing mathematics to bear in uh, building structures. He believed in the intellect. I have to say, I also believe in those things, at least as aspirations, but I have seen their undoing. And you know, not to get too dire about it, but I think that the biggest issue of our time is the uh, decline and attack on these Enlightenment values, which, of course, at their core, include the commitment to recognizing the dignity of every human being. That, too, is in doubt at this moment. So let's talk a little bit more about the local news aspect, which I think is really important. You go into great depth about how local news has really been struggling, which is something that a lot of people are sounding the alarm about. But I I don't know if anyone has yet a perfect solution. One of the things that is under a lot of discussion in the media industry right now is how 
the big legacy outlets like, say, the New York Times, the Washington Post, you know, the the Atlantic are doing well under the Trump years, better than ever, although that, that may be on the decline now. The business model of local news, which depended on ads and people looking to local papers to get information, has just really been undercut by the internet. There's some horrifying statistics that you cite about just the incredible amount of cuts to local news over the last few years and over the last year with uh, COVID-19 in particular. So why is local news so important? And what do we do if, as I kind of hinted at earlier, the problem is not just supply but demand? Like, What if people just don't want to read local news anymore? Well, before we skip over the national news, let's be clear. There are a few national outlets that are doing well, but most are struggling. I'm from Chicago, Illinois, and its major uh, newspaper uh, has now been purchased by uh, private equity. And uh, the day after it took ownership, uh, it offered buyouts to all the journalists, and most are taking them. This is one of what was once uh, six daily newspapers uh, in, in Chicago. There's now one left. This is happening all over uh, the country. But yes, I do agree. Maybe you call that local news, although in the Chicago area, it's kind of a regional paper. And, and one thing that I've learned is that these big papers serve as kind of tent poles that support a media ecosystem that supports neighborhood journalism and bloggers. And uh, when they go, that's a problem for them all. The decline in the local news industry is, though, even more severe, and it's particularly newspapers, but it's also the local television and radio. And uh, because it's been a struggling industry, you have private capital coming in, but it's been struggling, but not without revenues. It's just not revenues at the level of some other kinds of investments. And so unfortunately, we have now a phenomenon of private equity companies and other private investors coming in and purchasing local outlets to get their remaining assets, uh, including subscriptions, and strip mine them. And then, um, you know, replace uh, journalists with, uh, you know, uh, regional feature writers, some of which may be computers, um, and no more locally based uh, reporters reporting on what's going on in a local community. By 2019, 65 million Americans lived in counties that had either only one newspaper or none at all. And this is creating what the Pew Charitable Trust call news deserts, whole areas where at best there is a regional outlet that that gives some kind of uh, feature stories, but nothing that's about what's happening in that local community. And you make the important point about, well, maybe there's no demand. And uh, if there's no demand, then of course the market's not going to work. I don't think that's true though, because what we saw during COVID-19 is that there was enormous demand for local information. And people, of course, turned to the internet, but not always able to get their information about not just where could they uh, have a COVID-19 test, but what what kinds of risks ought they be thinking about in their local community and uh, what avenues for protection, even against other kinds of health risks, for example, lead in the water, uh, should they be pursuing? So the accountability function of journalism is uh, on the ropes in, in many, many, many communities in America. 
And it's interesting to me, having now uh, in the course of the book, using that as an excuse to to talk to people in the news business, you know, even big uh, outlets like the LA Times, they're struggling and they're trying to use data analytics to find, you know, well, when can they convert uh, the casual reader into a subscriber? And, and finding that if there are two or three areas like uh, sports and cooking, uh, that a person's more likely to subscribe. Well, you know, it turns out that we, here's where that technology and economics come together. The unbundling of news right now means that people can get their sports in one place and they can get their recipes in another place and their politics in a third place. So the cross subsidies that used to support the news industry are, are really uh, disrupted profoundly. So let's turn a little bit to law and government policy's role in all of this. Your father, Newton Minow, wrote the preface and notes that two words, public interest, are disappearing from communications policy. For the listeners that don't know, Newton Minow was the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission for a few years in the 60s, and his preface very much echoes his views then, um, where he was extremely critical of television broadcasters for not adequately serving the public interest. He's most famous, perhaps, for the quote that when television is good, nothing, not the theatre, not the magazines or newspapers, nothing is better, but when television is bad, nothing is worse. I invite each of you to sit down in front of your television set and I can assure you that what you will observe is a vast wasteland. Um, I'm sure you've heard that quote a, a million times and I'm sure you've heard this piece of trivia a million times too that the our, our, and our listeners might not have that the SS Minnow on Gilligan's Island was named after him to express uh, disappointment with his assessment of the quality of television which is I've always thought a very fun fact. So I guess the question is do you think he was right about television and is the problem then that law and policy sort of failed to respond to that moment and missed the boat, which is, you know, therefore been a sort of 60-year sort of decline from from failing to sort of step in then. So I, one of the great uh, delights and honors of my, uh, my life in the last year and a half has been to work with my dad on these issues uh, he was at the time of that speech a young, you know, 34 year old uh, taking on the media industry. He is now uh, 95, uh, but still very engaged in all of these issues and having seen, uh, as he describes it, the elephant from all sides. He's been involved in the public sector, the private sector, uh, all kinds of media. He's more worried now than he was then. And it's not a failure from that time. In fact, I, I would suggest that both under my dad's leadership and then others in the 60s and even early 70s, there were tremendously successful government policies. They had a prescription, which was uh, twofold, to increase uh, choice and therefore make markets more competitive and the other was to enforce a public interest standard in the licensing process, a public interest standard that then uh, led to children's television and to quality news programs. So choice and uh, enforcing minimum government standards, but all against the backdrop of a, of a marketplace where consumers could choose. That was the prescription. Uh, and it led to what many people think of as the golden age of television, you know, with uh, 
tremendous uh, improvements to children's television being a wonderful example. And the fact that Sesame Street created a kind of model and template for quality uh, broadcasting uh, led to competitors, uh, Nickelodeon and other private competitors, and that Sesame Street itself is now uh, carried on private platforms. That's a success story. I don't think that's a failure. The increase of choice that included uh, opening up UHF channels, making them uh, required as part of the production of television sets, selling uh, more parts of the spectrum, being more efficient in it, developing the basis for cable, uh, creating telecommunications satellites that have totally transformed what communications are right now. That's what the mission was, and I think it was mission accomplished. I don't think what anyone quite anticipated was that you know, there can be a point at which uh, too much choice is does not help, and also a point where concentration of ownership and the capital requirements for investment in a technology combined to make competition uh, really difficult. And then finally, uh, with all of this choice, the predicate for that minimal regulation, public interest regulation, was challenged because the predicate was the scarcity of the airwaves. And with cable and now the internet, that scarcity argument is gone. So uh, for legal reasons, the, the Constitution, the First Amendment, as well as political reasons, the government's regulation, the government's involvement in the media has, has really declined radically. That's a really interesting history. And I think it, it does a interesting work sort of setting up a contrast with the situation that we see today in terms of how we think about government involvement in the media ecosystem, which we'll get to in a little bit. Before, before we talk about that, though, I did want to ask, you sketch a pretty grim portrait of the modern news ecosystem in comparison to, you know, even a few decades ago, as we've just been discussing. And one of the interesting things your book offers is a kind of mini history of journalism and its interaction with government in America over the course of the history of the country. And in sort of describing the starry state of things today, you draw contrasts with journalism strength as an industry in the past, television as well, including with government support. But I also wanted to, to sort of play devil's advocate a little bit and ask, you know, were these previous eras of journalism and media really so great? <laughs> you So you note at one point that, you know, in the early Republic, printers printed not just truths, but rumors or invective. At another point, uh, when you're writing about the 1930s, you describe how, quote, radio offered avenues for people to warn listeners of emerging fascism in Europe, end quote. But of course, it also enabled fascist demagogues, um, most notably in the U.S., Father Coughlin. So I guess another way to phrase my question is how much of the crisis that we're facing today is really new? Has technology put us in a worse position today than it did then? It's a great question, and I certainly don't want to have just rose-colored glasses. Uh, there have always been Propaganda, there have always been lies, there's always been a, a search for scandals and selling papers. The era of yellow journalism is another that you could cite uh, in a time when uh, newspapers particularly were able to succeed uh, and to reduce their prices to a penny or two per paper by peddling uh, rumor, scandal, and often falsehoods. So I think all of that is true, um, but 
even the example you give about Father Coughlin, or we could go further and say uh, Senator McCarthy, these were instances of people who were clever at using mass media to uh, arouse fears, but they were also both brought down by media. And, you know, some of the most stirring moments uh, in uh, the history of American media are those moments uh, where someone who is abusing power is brought to uh, light and exposed uh, through the operation of investigation and confrontation that the media can allow. That's where I think we are broken right now. There are too many sub-communities. There's not a, an ecosystem you know, as my colleague Gilhai Benkler and others have demonstrated empirically, there are many parts of the ecosystem right now, in, including broadcast and cable, that are cut off from this checking function. Uh, and that's this brokenness of the market in the face of the news deserts we were talking about a moment ago in the local communities there often is only one news source, and it may be a radio a station that's owned by Sinclair or uh, broadcast and cable owned by Fox, and that's it. There's no nothing else, uh, and that's all that people hear. And I have heard now anecdotally from teachers in those kinds of communities that they are having trouble in the classroom because they'll raise a, a topic and the students will say, well, that's not what I heard at home even though it's just uh, in other parts of the country, it's what everybody understands as the truth. That's different than what we had in the past. And, you know, of course, there were always uh, communities that weren't integrated into the rest of the society, but there was a possibility of uh, checking uh, over time falsehoods and abusive behavior. Don't get me wrong, you know, the Rwandan genocide in many ways happened because of uh, abuse of, of radio airwaves. Mass media was a great tool of Adolf Hitler. Uh, mass media is a way for demagogues to uh, gain power. But it's also not surprising that in Hungary, in Poland, uh, one of the tactics of current strongmen is to try to shut down or curb the media. Uh, some say the same is true in Israel. And, uh, you know, President Trump had a strategy to try to sow distrust of mainstream media. It's a, it's a playbook that demagogues use. So why do they use it? It's because media can hold uh, to account people who exercise power. So I think that's a nice segue to back to the original point about the protection of the press and the Constitution. You're obviously a constitutional law professor and the Constitution looms large in this book. And you have a chapter titled, Does the First Amendment Forbid, Permit, or require government support of news industries. And that might create some cognitive dissonance for readers, um, the, the idea that the First Amendment might require something of government. You know, famously, the first words of the First Amendment are Congress shall make no law. So can you talk a little bit about how the First Amendment might require positively something for, of the government? One of the interesting facts is that the next word in the First Amendment is abridging. It doesn't say touching, concerning, involving. It says abridging. 
um, which last I looked means limiting, curbing. And in fact, uh, one reason I wrote the book, frankly, was that I wanted to understand better how did we reach to this point and uh, where was the history that integrated the law and the economics uh, and the technology uh, to explain the development of media. I couldn't find it. And so uh, as I worked my way through the various sources, uh, primary and secondary sources, I was just really myself overwhelmed to see how deeply involved the government of the United States has been with the development of media from the founding. You know, I'm very much uh, in favor of the First Amendment. I had been a journalist throughout uh, high school and college and uh, really had, had bought the popular line that the government has to stay clear of ever getting close to the media. Well, it's just not true, whether it's subsidies, you know, from the early days of the founding uh, in the Postal Service through the present. The government uh, has invested in the research that created the Internet. The government, of course, uh, licensed broadcasts. The government to this day oversees cable. It's usually done at a local level with regard to franchises. Then there's the antitrust and consumer protection regulations that have shaped ownership and the structure of media. So th there's no such thing as uh, the government can't touch uh, the media. In fact, the government has created the structure of the media that we have in this country. And one of the quick ways to demonstrate that is just to compare media in the United States with media in other countries. Uh, an example would be public broadcasting, where other major democratic societies have a far more direct government involvement in their public broadcasting. The United States, probably because of First Amendment concerns, created a more elaborate uh, protection for public broadcasting, public uh, media, uh, to be shielded from direct choices about content by the government. But that does not mean and has never meant that the government cannot subsidize, pay for, incentivize, reinforce public media. And it has done so. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So there's a big difference between the Constitution allowing something, in this case, you know, some kind of government support for media, 
as opposed to the constitution requiring something. There's sort of, you know, the latter seems like a, a big conceptual shift from a model of negative to positive rights, whereas the former is sort of within the conceptual framework of negative rights, but just understands the boundaries of what's permitted differently. Where where do you see the line between what, in your view, the First Amendment permits the government to do when it comes to, as you put it, saving the news, as opposed to what, in your view, the government has a constitutional duty to do? Well, I love your framing of that question because it suggests I've succeeded at least in overcoming the the negative uh, constitution conception of the First Amendment. And so permitted, uh, if you say that it's the government's permitted to act, I'm already uh, happy. But uh, yes, it's a bolder claim that I do make in the book that it may even be required. And I use the verb inflected, that the proposals that I make, I think, are constitutionally inflected. They are informed by the Constitution and constitutional values. So I'm blinking and not going the full distance to say they're absolutely mandated and required. But I'm close because I'm, I am suggesting that uh, if there isn't government action to help rescue, build, uh, fortify the, the news industry, it's news, not just media, that the very project of the democratic republic established by the constitution could fail. And I quote the, 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 old, the old saying that the constitution is not a suicide pact. And I think that there may well be an affirmative obligation. And I, you know, look, I'm not saying that the courts should be ordering uh, some kind of major change. I am saying that the court should not halt initiatives uh, that uh, steer clear of government censorship, but do affect and the structure and viability of the news industry. I think there are a variety of, of strategies that are possible. That's what the book's ultimate chapter explores. And there's no single solution. There's no silver bullet but some collection of activities I think are absolutely necessary for there to be a viable news industry. And without a viable news industry, we cannot have a viable democracy. Okay. So you brought up the court, which I think is an important elephant in the room. And, and, you know, we've been talking about how the government has done more or less throughout history and, and namely more most of the time to protect the press or bolster the press and that we're in sort of the low ebb at the moment. But then there is this concern about the court and, you know, it's uh, it's not dealing with the court we might want, but the court that we have. And so I guess before we dig into the obstacles that that creates, um, maybe we should sort of just set the stage a little bit and talk about, you know, the court's First Amendment jurisprudence and this concern that you have in the book about the weaponized First Amendment now. So just to sort of unpack that a little bit for our listeners, what do you mean by the weaponization of the First Amendment? Well, you know, it's interesting to me to learn that the truisms that I had learned as a law student and as a lawyer actually engaged in First Amendment litigation about the centrality of federal enforcement of the First Amendment hands-off kind of government approach are themselves uh, products of evolving history and doctrine. There was no enforcement uh, in the courts of the First Amendment till the 1920s, and even then, uh, really not really much at all. And the shape of the doctrine has changed over time. 
Uh, the weaponization phrase I take actually from a dissent, uh, dissenting opinion by Justice Elena Kagan, in which she uh, identifies the way in which recent members of the United States Supreme Court have been interpreting the First Amendment as an anti-regulatory tool, really in the model of what uh, the court has done at other periods of history using other parts of the Constitution, like the Due Process Clause, which really have nothing to do with the text or the history, but have to do with particular ideologies and views about economics and politics. And that's an ongoing fight about what is the role of the Supreme Court of the United States? What's the role of judicial review? Should uh, nine people or five of them, a majority of the court, be able to uh, reject uh, what are democratically uh, adopted approaches to government action? And right now, the First Amendment has become a tool of choice by private corporations that are seeking to avoid any kind of regulation. And really strikingly, you know, my colleague John Coates did an empirical study about where, where is First Amendment litigation right now? And the vast bulk of it, just numerically, the numbers of lawsuits are being brought by corporations and often uh, asserting their own rights to speech, which have been recognized by the court over time. And even to do such things as to prevent shareholders from circulating uh, proposals to alter corporate uh, policy. I don't think that's what the framers had in mind when they adopted the First Amendment. Right. But unfortunately, or, you know, that is what the First Amendment is or is becoming at the moment. I mean, you talk about the circulation of, of, of shareholder information, but I mean, we had last week, as is an, as another great example, the Supreme Court struck down the California law requiring charities to report their largest donors to the state, not, you know, publicly even, but just to the state government in California on First Amendment grounds, um, which is sort of a strike at the heart of the idea that, you know, if anything, transparency will save us. Um, if we can't sort of mandate or restrict political contributions, we can at least, you know, use sunlight. And so given that sort of line of jurisprudence, which you're sort of laying out and which only seems to be accelerating or, you know, on the increase. I guess that raises a question for your sort of conception and whether it's a sort of a utopian vision that would be wonderful to have or whether it's something that, you know, can actually be realized in practice and or whether that affects sort of the strategy that the government should take here, given that if you do something or pass something, it sets up this challenge. You know, the moment anything is passed, a First Amendment challenge, it's probably sitting in a drawer somewhere already just to be sort of pulled out when there's any kind of regulation here. Does that sort of set up a challenge of, is it worth opening that door to greater sort of opportunity for the court to keep walking down this path? Well, you've put a lot in that question. Um, let, let me just uh, start with the Supreme Court's decision last week in the disclosure requirement case. And it is a good example of a weaponized First Amendment in the sense that it's uh, using the First Amendment to prevent an accountability measure, uh, information to be reported to the government, not reported even publicly, and I disagree with what the court did, but I will say, I think it's a hard question and it's a hard question within First Amendment uh, values. So the 
competing First Amendment interest is anonymity uh, and the idea that anonymous speech, being able to be anonymous is one way to expand expression. That too would have resonated with the framers after all, many of whom wrote, whether it was the Federalist Papers or other important pieces of advocacy for the Constitution, uh, under pseudonyms. And the role of anonymity on the internet uh, has been also much defended as an important feature of free speech. So while I disagree with the court's decision, I think it, it wasn't such an obvious slam dunk. I think that the forced, the idea that there can't be disclosure requirements that, that's the part that I find most uh, troubling about the court's decision. And they didn't go so far as to say that's compelled speech always and can't be allowed. That's the danger. And the look, the courts are in part an audience for me, as are litigators, as are people who craft legislation. So, you know, I'm not scared of being called a utopian, but I am a practical person. And I am uh, speaking to all who have the possibility of influencing the questions before us. That includes judges and lawyers, and that includes those who will craft legislation. And there may be some lines to not cross. I don't think one of those lines to steer away from is mandatory disclosure of political contributions. And for that, I have the Supreme Court of the United States to cite. So uh, in its Decision rejecting campaign finance laws, the Supreme Court of the United States said, but of course, there's an alternative to putting a curb on uh, people's expenditures in campaigns, and that's requiring disclosure. Well, that was the Supreme Court of the United States recently, uh, and I am just reminding them that was them. Uh, Let's just not throw the baby out with the bathwater. So let's talk about the solutions that you have in mind to the the long, long list of problems that we face. You you list a, a number. Do you want to maybe pick a few of your favorites and tell us how they might work? Well, f- thanks. I do think that there are three big categories of government action that not only are permissible, but as I say, may be constitutionally inflected. They advance constitutional values. The the first is to uh, actually hold the internet platform companies, the big ones, uh, responsible for their conduct that is currently contributing to the decline or destruction of the news industry. And that's across the range of activity that includes stealing content and not paying for it, and, and also uh, getting the benefit of uh, insulation and therefore, in my view, unfair competition. This is now a technical point, but Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act uh, was created to help promote some free space for the fledgling new enterprises with this newfangled thing called the Internet well, by insulating the internet platforms from the same liabilities that would attach to uh, existing publishers and media, that law now has helped to contribute to the creation of some of the largest and most successful companies in the history of the planet. I don't think they need that insulation anymore. A second uh, bucket 
has to do with enforcing and strengthening protections that uh, have existed in the past and could exist uh, even better in the future, protections against fraud, protections of, of a contractual nature, and intellectual property laws. Uh, and the last bucket is the support through direct subsidies, through tax uh, deductions, uh, through tax treatment of uh, nonprofit media and public media, indeed media generally. I mean, I am myself extremely uh, interested in and hopeful about uh, bipartisan legislation that has been recently reintroduced in the Congress that would have a combination of techniques to support uh, local news. It's the Local Journalism Sustainability Act that puts together ways to uh, support anyone who subscribes to a local uh, media, whether it's a newspaper or um, a a web magazine, but has to have local reporters, um, would also uh, help to amplify the roles of local businesses by giving them preferable tax treatment if they actually uh, support, uh, take ads out and so forth in local media, and also would do use techniques such as um, exemption from payroll taxes uh, for those uh, enterprises that add new staff in local media. Those are wonderful examples of the ways in which uh, the government can subsidize uh, without getting into content and indeed, by reinforcing and amplifying the choices of private people, private donors, private companies in supporting uh, local media. And I would just add, uh, you know, I think there could and should be similar support for and strengthened support for uh, national, public and nonprofit media and for even a public uh, alternative form of the Internet. So I think that those three buckets uh, describe what I'm talking about. I mean, antitrust uh, is a, uh, an area that I consider, and I don't strongly think that antitrust remedies would make much of a difference here. I mean, if you broke Facebook up into five companies, they would still be among the biggest companies in the world. But I do think that the threat of antitrust action could lead to better self-regulation and also uh, to conditions that the government might even negotiate that would lead to better conduct on the part of uh, very big conglomerates that are currently squeezing out the conventional news industry. And so I think it's all to the good that we have right now people on both Republicans and Democrats pursuing and exploring changes in uh, antitrust law and enforcement, changes in Section 230 uh, immunity, increases in public support, direct or indirect, for public media. I think that the crisis message is not overblown, and it is recognized by people in both parties. So I think what's great about that is showing how many levers there are to pull, and it's not just a matter of pulling one lever. I mean, we have so many problems that we're going to need so many solutions. Uh, I think often when we talk about these things, we talk about them in silos and we talk about, you know, liability reform or antitrust or, you know, boosting a public media in isolation from all of them, not recognizing that it's, um, a, you know, your analogy an ecosystem and they, they work dynamically together and it requires lots of different solutions. 
one thing that we sort of haven't talked about is is another elephant in the room, which you and I have talked about previously, which is Fox News. And I think it's impossible to talk about the state of the news or the ecosystem of the news without talking about Fox. I think we've sort of gestured at it a little bit in this conversation. And you're not complimentary about it in the book, you know, writing that it exemplifies and fuels the polarization of both media and politics. And as important as social media platforms are, um, it seems to me that Fox is also, you know, perhaps equally as important. And it's striking to me how much sort of First Amendment concerns crop up so much more in conversations about legacy media and, and sort of things like cable news than they do when we're talking about things like like social media platforms and intermediary liability. So I don't know, just sort of if you have any ideas, do you think I have a correct diagnosis there that Fox News might be a problem? And if so, what do we do about it? Well, I I do think Fox News is a problem. And it's not only because I disagree with its politics. Uh, It is because, as you say, it, it, it really isn't interested in news. It's interested in outrage. And it's not just an equal problem to internet platforms, it's a bigger problem uh, in that in many communities, it is the only source of news. I think that it needs to be uh, understood against, again, part of the history, which is the elimination of the fairness doctrine. So as part of that public interest requirement of regulation that the federal government used to have, there was this notion that any media platform that was subject to government regulation, needed to present competing sides of controversial issues. And that policy was predicated on scarcity. And so it may no longer have a legal hook, but it certainly reflected and then reinforced and strengthened uh, the development of an ideal of the media as having a professional obligation not only to pursue the truth, but to pursue all of the truth. Fox uh, actually uh, has as its entire business proposition quite to the contrary. And uh, when Roger Ailes uh, met with uh, Rupert Murdoch uh, to to talk about uh, the possibility of a new network and heard uh, what Murdoch was planning, he, he said, I don't like it because you're trying to compete the same way that the other uh, broadcasters are for the entire audience. You should go for a portion of the audience. And Murdoch said, can I make money that way? And Ailes said, you can make more money that way. And that's been the model. And the result has been to fragment the community and to fragment the information that people get. So yes, it's a major problem. It cannot be directly regulated, um, but it could be indirectly uh, in that the uh, antitrust issues might actually have more to say about Fox than they do about the internet platforms. But more generally, competition across all of the different sources of news so that there is more than one source of news in a community, not just Fox, that would be helpful. Fox is in many ways a puzzle because, as you sort of just pointed out, it's on the face of it a journalistic organization, and yet it doesn't abide by many journalistic norms. You know, you you write a lot about the importance of journalistic norms in the book, and I'm I'm wondering if you could 
maybe spell out what you have in mind by that. And I also wanted to ask you, you know, to what extent is the problem right now that journalistic norms aren't being adhered to by, say, Fox or by social media platforms, which you identify as not adhering to these norms and how they moderate content? And to what extent is it that there's just genuine dispute over what these norms should be? Like Even outside Fox, for example, there are lots of disputes roiling journalism right now about how journalists should behave, not just when it comes to, say, the question of how journalists should deal with racism, which is a big problem in major newsrooms right now, but also about you know, things like whether journalists should accept and publish material obtained through hacking. So I'm, I'd just be interested in your reflections on that. Another big and uh, question with many dimensions. Uh, you know, the ideal of objectivity is historically contingent and relatively recent. Michael Shudson is the great historian and sociologist of that subject, really turn of the 20th century. And the development of journalistic norms like two sources for a story, like disclose conflicts of interest of uh, anyone who's quoted in a story, uh, those took time to develop. And it's interesting to me that, you know, journalism does not have a professional school requirement or an exam that anyone has to take to be a journalist. Uh, the way that law and medicine does. And so some people even dispute whether journalism is a profession. I think that the democratization uh, that the internet provides has some good features that we can have citizen journalism, we can have people who are not trained, uh, haven't gone to school, but can nonetheless hold up their cell phone and uh, film uh, Chauvin choking George Floyd Uh, and share it with the world. I mean, those are important uh, and valuable advances. But I do think that the uh, world got better with the development of the self-organized norms for quality journalism. And we need some similar kinds of activities, in my view, now for the new forms of communication. So Jonathan Rauch, who's at the Brookings has an important book that came out this year called The Constitution of Knowledge, in which he describes how the development of professional norms have been central to the creation of knowledge institutions, whether it's uh, the science uh, enterprises and university publications or media, and that the development of professional norms have actually advanced knowledge and knowledge has advanced human experience human safety, human quality of life. Um, And that all of that, again, is under jeopardy right now uh, with the doubt that's cast on any kind of intermediary, any kind of expert, any kind of standard. So I don't think I can answer all of your very particular and important questions about um, many of the foibles and eddies and, and dead ends that are going on in media right now But I think that they all, at some point, uh, can be traced back to this decline of a constructive commitment to building knowledge institutions and uh, testing, uh, and even the ideal of of correcting error. So that's the project uh, that awaits us. 
So I actually want to take a bit of a hard pivot now and talk about something that might sound unrelated, but I think is actually right on point, and especially in relation to the ideas that you were talking about just then about the role of education. So I've had the privilege of sitting in on a class that you co-teach at Harvard Law School called Fairness and Privacy Perspectives on Law and Probability. And what makes this course unusual and unique is that it's jointly offered with the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences as a computer science course. And so you co-teach it with Cynthia Dwork, um, who is known for her research placing privacy, preserving data analysis on a mathematically rigorous foundation, I- including sort of the co-invention of, of differential privacy. And so I guess the question that I wanted to ask you about this is about the experience of teaching computer science and law students together. And I personally think it's really important and I think it worked really, really well because my experience in working in in this space, in, in sort of the work that I've done, is that it's so multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary and you can't really try and tackle these problems without having multiple perspectives and disciplines in the room. You know, lawyers aren't going to solve content moderation, which is as much a technical problem as a legal and, and social one. But that presents unique challenges because we often speak very different languages when we're talking about the same issues. So these different perspectives are both a boon and a challenge. And I think it was really fascinating to see in your class, computer science students and law students come at questions about like what constitutes fairness and the in the use of an algorithm with just sort of like entirely different words to talk about these issues. So I'm curious for your reflections on, on that experience and sort of the role of education in this endeavor that you just laid out about the project that we have to do in in fixing this problem. Well, gosh, thank you for that uh, wonderful description and the opportunity to talk about what's been, for me, a complete joy uh, of a learning experience and teaching alongside somebody who I admire very much, Cynthia Dwork, and inventing a class, as you say, that is both joint and separate Uh, really emerged uh, over several years of discussion. And we also had an early iteration of the course that tried to combine everybody in one class all the time. And we found that we couldn't get deep enough into law or into computer science uh, if we were in the same room all the time. So instead, the class is structured to have one shared class a week and then separate classes, one for the law students, one for the computer science students, with anyone from the other classes invited to come with the knowledge that the discussion is going to get pretty mathematical pretty quickly in computer science and pretty uh, involved in legal doctrine uh, with the with the law students uh, pretty quickly. But for me, the recognition that uh, we don't mean the same thing by the same words, uh, that fairness for many computer scientists means accuracy, for example, whereas for the lawyers, it, it includes opportunities to participate. Uh, really profound consequences of those different meanings for how to uh, design, oversee, evaluate, and assess uh, the development of artificial intelligence. Uh, I, I really was uh, very, very impressed by the projects that the students undertook Uh, We did invite, indeed require the students to work uh, together across their disciplinary differences. And uh, my hope is that we are building a new generation of bilingual uh, individuals. And that's what education can do. Uh, Formal and informal education can help people go deep and go broad 
at the same time. You know, I was very struck by the numbers of computer science students who said that they were getting their degrees and certification as computer scientists, and no one had ever raised the kinds of questions that we were raising uh, about fairness, about bias, about privacy, about accountability in their programs. So my hope is that actually uh, this kind of course will spread. I think that there is enormous interest among uh, the digital native generation for actually understanding the social, historical, legal, ethical context of technology uh, and take responsibility for its design going forward. You know, if we survive this challenging time, if democracy survives, if uh, we're able to uh, uh, work through many of our social, political, racial differences, I do think that the, the challenges of artificial intelligence will be the big ones for humanity going forward. All right. That is all the time we have. Martha, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And thanks for the wonderful questions, wonderful discussion, and the work that you do all the time. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed. And we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer this episode was Hamza Shitu. Our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast and whatever app you use. And thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.